morning. Today's scripture reading is Hosea chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. When Ephraim spoke there was trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your thorns? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, and the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasure, treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Well, good morning. Um, it's good to be here, fam, um, on this day after Independence Day. Um, and so, um, yeah, because it's Independence Day, um, I thought I'd take just a minute and talk about what happened 244 years ago. There's going to be a very quick and brief history lesson. Uh, so on July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress signed a declaration of independence to the King of England. Their main indictment against the king read thus, says the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And the document goes on and lists in detail the ways in which the tyranny has occurred. Taxation without representation, lack of jury trials, the forced housing of soldiers. The list is extensive and leads up to this declaration. It says that these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states. And so we know what occurred after this. A war ensued, and eventually the 13 colonies won their independence from the king. And so now, we as citizens of the United States get to live as independent citizens free from the king. 
See, I, I hope your ears perked up on that last line. The reality is, as Christians, we should never live independent from our king. We are not ultimately citizens of the United States. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to the one true king. We are not independent. We are completely dependent. And see, we have seen this relationship played out throughout Hosea. In the first three chapters, Hosea is called to marry Gomer, an unfaithful wife. Hosea is called to repeatedly love her in spite of her continual rejection of her relationship to him. And really, this was a picture of the relationship between God and Israel. Israel wasn't freed from the tyranny of Egypt to live independent lives, doing whatever they pleased. God granted Israel independence from Egypt so they could live out the promise that he made to their father Abraham, that they would be their God and they would be his people. See, really, in this relationship, they were to be dependent on him. And the rest of Hosea up to this point is full of God's repeated judgment against Israel for their unfaithful relationship to him, for choosing to live independent from God. There are glimmers of hope, like we will see again next week, but overall, this has been a heavy book full of God's unrelenting judgment and Israel's unrelenting rejection of God. And in case you couldn't pick it up from the text this week, uh, we're going to again be talking about God's judgment. And specifically, we're going to see how Israel's pride was deserving of God's just judgment. My prayer for you today is that you will see not Israel's pride, but your own pride. You will see that the full weight of your declaration of independence from God is deserving of his judgment. And you will see this, and as you see this, you will respond not with guilt or shame, but instead renounce your sin and turn to Christ. That you will find the cross more beautiful and more fulfilling than you did yesterday. So today, uh, we're going to look at three reasons why our pride is deserving of God's just judgment. And here are those three reasons. So we are deserving of God's just judgment when our pride in our position leads us and others to serve other gods. Our pride in our prosperity leads us to forget that God is our provision, and our pride in our wisdom leads us to reject God as king. And all of this ultimately leads to the reality that our pride is absolutely worthy of judgment. So let's get started. So first, we see that we are deserving of God's just judgment because our pride in our position leads us and others to serve other gods. Through our influence, we can lead people to idolatry. Look with me starting in verse 1. Hosea says, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. See here, Hosea paints a picture of Ephraim as the figurehead for all of Israel. As Jared mentioned last week, Ephraim was the largest and strongest tribe in the northern kingdom. And although it isn't clear why from the text, it is clear that Ephraim has some form of authority over Israel. Within Israel, Ephraim was elevated above the rest of the tribes. And when he spoke, there was trembling. So to say this in another way, when Ephraim spoke, people listened. He commanded the room. His words held influence and authority over the rest of Israel. The text says that he was exalted in Israel. Ephraim wasn't just heard by 
Israel, Ephraim's words held value in the decisions that Israel would make. So what does Ephraim do with this authority? How does Ephraim use his influence on the rest of Israel? Does Ephraim humbly acknowledge that the only reason he has his influence is because God gave it to him? No, so verse 1 continues. It says, but he, which is Ephraim, incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they, Israel, sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of the work of craftsmen. So Ephraim, a tribe of God's holy people, used their position of influence not to strengthen Israel, not to push them into the Lord, not to rebuke them and call them back to the Lord. Instead, Ephraim used their elevated position in Israel to worship another God and lead the rest of Israel to follow them into idol worship. And there, there was nothing special about Ephraim. I mean, like, Ephraim wasn't the tribe that led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They weren't the ones who sustained Israel in the wilderness. They didn't provide a sacrificial system to bring the people of Israel back into the presence of God. No, they were just a tribe. They didn't work harder than the other tribes. They weren't better than the rest of the tribes. They weren't more deserving of God's favor. No, instead, God gave them their position so that they could be, make God known. But Ephraim grew proud in their position. They forgot who gave them their position of influence. They forgot why they were given their position of influence. They had a choice. Would they use their influence to help Israel love their God or to love other gods? Would they be an example of what holy people should look like, or would they conform to the world around them and lead other people to follow? And this should make us think about our lives. We can use our influence over others to tempt people to love other things more than God. God has given each of you a position of influence, not because you were worthy, but because God wants to use you to point others to himself. So what are you doing with the influence that God has given you? You may not know it, or you may not believe me, but we are all influencers. If you don't believe me, I just want to take a minute and just walk through a couple of examples. So if you are a parent, you influence who or what your children will love. Will they remember how important good grades or good behavior were in your home? Or will they remember Jesus? If you are of the older generation, with your wisdom, knowledge of life, and your empty nest, look around. There are a lot of full nests in this church. The younger generation needs you to use your influence to remind us that in all things, Jesus will sustain us. Our careers, our foolishness, our parenting, and so on, we need you to use your influence to encourage us. If you are mature in the faith, use your knowledge of the scriptures and godly character to influence an immature believer in the, to love Jesus more. Don't just point them to your knowledge, point them to Christ. And if you are single, talk to the kids in this church. Ask them about their day. Use your influence to invest in their lives. Give up a Friday night with your friends to take a six-year-old to get a slice of pizza. And tell them that as satisfying as that pizza is, Jesus is better. If you still uh, aren't sure if you're an influencer, 
Are you an aunt, uncle, grandparent, brother, sister, cousin, neighbor, manager, coworker? You have influence in your sphere of life. What will you do with these positions that God has given you? Will you point others to Christ? Or will you point them to prioritizing their image, success, money, entertainment, moralism? Man, if you are in Christ, God has given you your position of influence to make him known. Nothing else. But see, we can not only use our influence to lead people to idolatry, we must remember that we are to be distinctly worshipers of God. Picking up in the rest of verse 2. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. This is, this is a really heavy picture. Like the people that God brought out of Egypt to be his holy people are now known as the people who offer human sacrifice and kiss calves. You see, God set Israel apart from the nations around them. He made them his special possession. He set his affections on Israel. But instead of staying faithful to their God, instead of being the faithful bride they were made to be, they are now known for deplorable acts and putting their hope in golden calves. And just like Israel, all who are in Christ are to be distinct worshipers of God. When you were brought out of slavery to your sin, you were made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were once a worshiper of anything but God. You worshiped yourself, sex, friends, whatever made you feel good. But now, that part of you is dead. The blood of Christ didn't just save you from your sin. You were made new. Your affections changed. Your desires changed. Your hope changed. You were made to be distinctively a worshiper of God. But is that what you are known for? See, when people look at your life, what do they say about you? Is it said of you that you worship sports? Is it said of you that you worship your children? Is it said of you that you are a flirt, irritable, condescending, arrogant, bitter? Brothers and sisters, this is not who we were made to be. We must repent. We must turn from this sin and run to Christ. In his blood, we have victory. We can live as the worshipers we were made to be. We must use the identity that God has given us to point others to Jesus. But second, uh, not only can our pride in our position lead us and others to serve other gods, and, you, and you'll see this on your handout, our pride in our prosperity leads us to forget that God is our provision. We can forget that we need God to be our provision. So look with me in verse 4. It says, But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. See, God reminds Israel that it was him who provided salvation from the land of Egypt. God was the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and called him to command Pharaoh to let his people go. 
God was the one who caused ten plagues to fall on Egypt, leading Pharaoh to finally tell the Israelites to get out. God was the one who parted the Red Sea so that Israel could escape the armies of Pharaoh. What did Israel do to save themselves? Nothing. But, but what did God do to save Israel? Everything. Going back to the text, it says, You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. See, God isn't just reminding Israel who saved them. He is reminding them of who their only provision really is. He is their only Savior. All these other idols that they are worshiping, all these other idols that they are hoping in, what can they do? Like, can they save Israel? Can they provide salvation? No, there was no salvation for the Israelites apart from God. But God not only provided salvation to Israel from the land of Egypt, he provided for Israel in the wilderness as well. So check out verse 5. It says, uh, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God here is again reminding Israel that their provision is God. This verse is emphasizing God's care for Israel in the wilderness as they waited to enter the promised land. On their journey to the promised land, God continually cared for Israel. See, God was the one who provided daily manna for the Israelites. God was the one who turned the bitter water sweet. God was the one who kept their clothing and sandals from wearing out. See, God didn't just save Israel from Egypt and tell them, good luck, I'll see you when you get there. No, he knew the journey would be hard, so he knew them along the way. He cared for them with each step they took. In spite of all their grumbling, all their complaining, all their accusations against God, God still faithfully cared for them. He took actions to be their provision. And see, what did Israel do? Nothing. They were incapable of caring for themselves in the wilderness. And see, if, if I had one thing that I wanted you to get from the sermon, it is this. We need God to be our provision. See, just like Israel, we need to be set free from a slave master. We were bound in slavery to sin. We could do nothing but sin. And our judgment was more severe than the Israelites. We didn't have someone whipping us if we weren't moving fast enough. Someone telling us what we could and could not do. No, we had the wrath of God resting on us. We did what we wanted with no regard for the God of the universe. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what did you bring to the table? What did you bring to save yourself? The passions of your flesh? The desires of the body and the mind? Those things only made you objects of God's wrath. But God... 
being impressed with your moralism? No. But God being convinced through your penitence? No, it says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. While you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, you were made alive by God's grace. God did this. You brought nothing into the relationship but your dead body and your sin. And only through Christ can we be set free from our bondage to sin. And how did he make us alive in Christ? God placed all of our sin on Christ. The wrath that you were deserving of was completely emptied on him. But is this true for everyone? No, no, this is only true if you have turned to Christ. If you have seen your sin for what it really is, something that is only worthy of judgment, something that you cannot save yourself from, that the only way that you can stand before God on judgment day is to turn to God, the only Savior, and ask for mercy. If you have never looked to Christ as the one who can remove your judgment, please look to him now. He is altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether all that you need. In him, God has provided a way for you too to be freed from your slavery to your sin and death. If you turn to him and turn away from your sin, he will be your provision. And see, but he doesn't just provide for salvation. Just like he provided for Israel in the wilderness, God will continue to provide for his children after their freedom from slavery to sin. Like Israel, although all who are in Christ have been freed from slavery, we have not reached our final rest, the better promised land. And as we wander in this life, in the same way God provided daily bread for the Israelites, we need him to provide for our needs daily. And I don't mean explicitly physical needs right here. I mean, this world is still under the curse of the fall. Sin still infects every aspect of this world. Relationships with family members are strained. Kids wake up in the middle of the night and cry uncontrollably. Corporations eliminate positions because they are more concerned about profits than employees. And see, and that doesn't even begin to take into consideration everything that has happened this year. This world has experienced a global pandemic, unjust murders, and equally unjust riots and looting. This world is hard. But God did not save you from your bondage of your sin and tell you good luck. No, if you are truly in Christ, if you are truly free from your bondage to sin, he gave you the Holy Spirit. He provided you with a helper to navigate this wilderness that we are in. He did this for you. You are not alone. You don't have to navigate this life on your own. So stop trying to. Instead, yield to the Holy Spirit and allow him to lead you through this wilderness of life. He alone can provide you endurance, joy, sanctification, and hope as we wait for our final rest. So jumping back to Israel, and you would expect a story like this to end with Israel joyfully serving their God. I mean, look at all the ways that God has provided for them. Like, they have done nothing but God, they are now free from slavery to Egypt and have entered the promised land. You'd expect joyful exclamations of, wow, like what a great God we serve. But 
Instead, we, just like Israel, forget that God is our provision. So keep reading with me. It says in verse 6, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This idea of grazing points to the entrance into the promised land. In their wandering, Israel had no choice but to depend on God to be their provision. Now, they were no longer wandering. They could eat to their heart's content. And what happened? They were filled, but not by God, by other things. They no longer needed God to provide food for them daily. They found strength not in the daily bread that God had provided, but in the work of their own hands. And because they were secure in their own provision, in their pride, they forgot God was really their provision. And see, we have to see ourselves in this passage. We too can forget that God is our provision. We forget that the same God that saved us from our slavery to sin is the same God that sustains us today. Just like he did for Israel in the wilderness, apart from him, we can have We cannot have the strength to kill sin. Apart from him, we cannot find joy in all situations. How will you defeat the lust in your life on your own? You can't. The gospel already told you that you bring nothing into this relationship with the Lord other than your sin. He alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can help you kill your sin. How how will you find hope in your singleness on your own? You can't. The gospel tells you that you can only be fully satisfied in Christ. How can you joyfully serve your kids when you are burning the candles on both ends of your, on your own? You can't. The gospel tells you that you are more needy than your children. See, we must not forget that we need Christ. So how do we keep from forgetting that God is our provision? So I just have three quick ways to keep your mind on the fact that you need Christ. So first, rehearse and repeat how the Lord saved you. So what I mean by that is constantly remind yourself of who you were before Christ. Thank him regularly that those things that defined who you were are now in the past. The anger, the deceit, the fear of man, the pride, the bitterness, all your sin was nailed to the cross and you now are no longer defined by those sins in your life. Praise the Lord. See, but, and don't just tell it to yourself. Tell other people who you were before Christ. When I say tell others, I mean give them details about who you were. Just as an example, um, my wife and I, we regularly share the story of our marriage with people. We've been married for 13 years, but 10 of those years were horrible. Like, our marriage was defined by my anger, my deceit, my pride, and my selfishness. When the Lord saved me, our marriage changed because God changed me. There is not a time that we share our story. When I hear Amber share the specific ways that I hurt her, that I'm not filled with sorrow. But then I'm reminded of who God has made me now. Like, when we tell our story, it keeps God's provision of salvation in front of my mind. It it kills the pride in our lives that tells us that we had something to do with who we are today. 
Second way to keep this in the forefront of your mind is to confess your sins to your brothers and sisters. See, confession reminds us that we still need the gospel. We are not good enough on our own. Although we have been declared righteous, we need help to live out our new identity. And when I say confess your sin, I don't mean telling people that you were angry this past week. No, I mean get down and tell people how specifically you were angry. Did you yell at your wife? Did you cut someone off in traffic because they cut you off? Did you punch a hole in the wall? If we do not get specific, then we are not truly confessing our sin. Confession reminds us that we still need God's help. And it also invites other people in to remind us of our dependency on God. So third way to keep uh, our dependence on God in the forefront of our mind, fast regularly. This doesn't have to be days at a time, but maybe it is skipping a meal once a week or fasting one day every other week. Whatever it is that you choose to do, as your stomach longs for food, as the pains grow stronger and the rumblings grow louder, remind yourself in that moment that you need God more than you need food. Instead of longing for food, long for your real provision, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Open his word, open your mouth and sing praise. Pray and confess your need for him more than food. See, we must not forget that God is our provision. Our pride tells us that we do not need God, but the gospel tells us that we absolutely do. Third thing we see from this text regarding our pride, and you'll see this on your handout, is that our pride and our wisdom leads us to reject God as king. We must remember that we cannot be saved by other saviors. So starting in verse 9, it says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. See, if you are using the ESV, uh, you'll notice that the he destroys in verse 9 has a little footnote that this can be translated, I will destroy. That's probably more appropriate given the context. And so, and so why will God destroy Israel? Because they are against their helper. Israel, rather than listening to the wisdom of the Lord, thought they knew how they could be helped best. In, in their pride, they told God that their wisdom was superior to his. And see, this should remind us of 1 Samuel 8. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel demands a king. They look around at all the other nations and demand that Saul give them a king. The Lord's response to Samuel is heavy. See, in 1 Samuel 8, 7, he says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Israel rejected God from being king over them. In their wisdom, they thought they knew a better way to be ruled. They rejected the real king, the one who faithfully provided for them, the one that faithfully protected them, and instead traded them in for one that God would reject. And every king after Saul failed to live up to the standard of what a king should be. And now, where was their protection? Where was their salvation? The kings that Israel trusted themselves to 
could never save them. In their pride, they thought they knew the best way to run their lives. They rejected God as king. The end result is that they will be destroyed. See, when we reject God as king and run to other saviors, our demands also end in despair. At the end of a long, hard day, our wisdom and the wisdom of this world tells us that we need to put on a movie. Or it tells us that we need to scroll through social media. Or whatever it is that you run to to be your savior from your hard day. We rationalize in our minds that this thing will bring me greater joy than being self-controlled, than reading a gospel-centered book, praying for the nations, and ultimately bowing before the king. But whatever we run to really never provides what it promises. It never provides the rest that we are longing for. We are always looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing if we are not running to Christ. See, but in spite of our failed searches for a better savior, we still continue to look to other saviors. Like, look with me in verses 12 and 13. It says, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is, un he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. In spite of Israel's failed attempt to run to other protectors, they still will not turn to God. It says their iniquity is bound up. They won't let it go. It's tied up and sealed. They will not turn from their sin. And not only will they not let it go, they have a whole storehouse full of sin. This isn't just a passive rebellion against God's wisdom. This is a full force attack. Hosea likens their response to a child when labor begins that does not prepare himself for birth. This may not seem significant to you, but you have to remember what that meant for Israel at that time. When this happens today, we have medicine, procedures, equipment to make sure that the baby is delivered without harm. If a child didn't prepare himself for birth in Hosea's day, it meant death. The warning here is clear. If Israel continues in the rebellion against God, it will lead to not only their physical death, but also their spiritual death. And the same warning can be given to you and I. If we continue to reject God as king over our lives, if we continually do things that we define as right, rather than what God defines as right, then watch out. You may have given your life to Jesus. You may have prayed a prayer. But if in your life you continually reject God as king, then there is a good chance that you are still under the condemnation of your sin. That you are still under the wrath of God that will not lead to physical death, but your spiritual death. So lastly, in this passage, we see that our pride is deserving of God's judgment. See, going back through everything that we've talked about, when we use our influence to lead people to other gods, we deserve to be made nothing. So verse 3 says, Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Everything listed here disappears. This is what we deserve. When we forget that God is our provision, 
We deserve to be destroyed. Verses 7 and 8. So I am to be like them, a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. And those are some really intense images. This is what our sin deserves. And lastly, when we reject God as king, we deserve for God to show no compassion to us. Verses 14 and 16, it says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. See, and this is actually the last word of judgment in Hosea. And it is a graphic picture of total annihilation. If you have an older version of the ESV, verse 14 begins with two questions. God asks, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? The context makes sense for this to be posed as a question. And God gives his answer at the end of verse 14. He says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. See, in spite of all of Israel's pride, could God save them from their destruction? The answer is yes. God could have chosen to save Israel from their sin, but instead, he will not have compassion on them. Their destruction was coming. And this is where we as Christians are different than Israel. See, our sin is deserving of God's just judgment. We deserve his just judgment when our pride in our position leads us to serve other gods. We deserve God's just judgment when our pride in our prosperity leads us to forget that God is our provision. And lastly, we deserve God's just judgment when our pride and our wisdom leads us to reject God as king. See, we deserve to be made nothing. We deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to not have compassion given to us. But instead, God has shown us compassion. He has shown us compassion by sending Jesus Christ to take on the full judgment that we deserve for our pride. He has destroyed the power and the sting of death through Christ's resurrection. And and what should our response be in all of this? See, we must see that we can be just as prideful as Israel. But God had compassion on you before you knew him. And God still has compassion on you now because of Christ's blood that bled for your pride. See, we must repent of our pride. We must humbly acknowledge that we were given our positions of influence to point others to Christ, not to ourselves. See, God gave you those positions. Use them for his glory. We must humbly acknowledge that our provision is Christ. Nothing you can do on your own is better than what Christ has already done for you. 
And we must humbly acknowledge that we are not wiser than God. God knows what you need. He is your helper and your only savior. We can turn from our pride into God because we already have victory through the blood of Jesus. Paul quotes the middle of section, middle section of verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, which says, starting in verse 54, it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, we have victory over our pride. Let's pray. Father, like, yeah, we are prideful people. God, you have given us victory over our sin and death. You have set us free from our bondage of sin and death, but Lord, we still run back to it. We still forget who you have made us now, Lord. God, we pray that you would give us hearts that humbly acknowledge our dependency on you. Father, we have nothing that we bring to this relationship except for our sin, except for our bodies that have been corrupted by sin. God, we must depend on you, Father. Lord, we must use our influence that you have given us, these positions that you have given us, Lord, to not point people to ourselves, but to point them to you, Father. Like, God, and we, we must acknowledge that we need you. Like, we, you are the only Savior. You are the only true King. You know what is best for us, God. We do not know anything. Father, would you give us repentance from these things, God, the pride that we see in our lives. Father, would you help us to be truly dependent on you? In your name we pray, amen.